Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking gun laws in America today because, well, there's such a history there and we've never really delved into it. We've seen, Keith, over the last, well, decades now, just gun violence, increasing gun violence over there and the severity of it, you know, 17 dead in a school, 32 dead somewhere else, 50 dead in that massacre in Las Vegas a couple of years back. And as we know, it's a political hot potato over there, the NRA, the it is yeah, the National right? Rifle yeah. Association. So, so yeah. having a moment. Just pay so much money yep. to the Republicans who will never turn on them, it would seem. So nothing is done about these gun laws. But it hasn't always been like that. And I thought it was important that we look back, or we both thought it was important that we look back and track what happened to America. Because, yeah, it was never like that. Well, let's start off with the Second Amendment. So we go back to um, 1789. So the Americans uh, wrote a constitution which is still in operation to this day back then, so that's um, a couple of hundred years ago, over 200 years ago. And it was a constitution which brought the various states together to replace an earlier one, which was uh, falling apart. So this was a a new constitution which centralised power in Washington, D.C. But a number of Americans were saying, well, we're now giving so much power to the government. Are we creating a replacement for King George III, the English dictator, who ran the original 13 American colonies? So they then ad- adopted what is called the Bill of Rights. So these are the amendments to the Constitution which protect the ordinary American against his or her own government. So that's what the Bill of Rights is about. So, for example, Article 1, which a lot of people refer to, is freedom of opinion, freedom of expression, etc., The Second Amendment, which is one that we need to look at, is a guarantee that Americans are allowed to own guns. Uh, I'll give you the actual wording. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. In other words, that the Second Amendment envisaged that Americans would be able to get access to guns because they would be useful to protect the American state against invasions. Of course, they recently had a war against the British. We're going to get another one shortly. And, you, of course, you can never trust the French or the Spanish with sniffing around. They may be trying to take back over um, American territory. And then as the, the, the centuries have rolled by, I've noticed that the current argument is that the Japanese did not want to attack mainland America after Pearl Harbor because they knew that the Americans were so well armed and that they would have then attacked against the Japanese if they had invaded. So it's very much part of that American culture. But what is also interesting is that there is this right for you to own a gun if you want to, but in fact, for much of the 19th century, uh, gun ownership was not a big issue. So if you think back to your Hollywood movies and the Old West, etc. in fact, many of the towns that you see in the Old West were actually gun-free zones. So when the cowboys arrived at the edge of town, they had to surrender their guns. And indeed, one of the reasons it's been argued for the gunfight at OK Corral is that the Earp brothers were collecting the guns off a group that were being reluctant to hand the guns over. So the American towns were actually quite safe in the 19th century. Obviously, if you're an Indian, you'd have a harder time. But generally speaking... Towns were a lot safer than you would get the impression from watching the Old West 
Hollywood movies. The change tends to come at the end of the 19th century. So the middle of the century is fine. End of the 19th century, you then begin to get a lot more guns being produced more cheaply. And so bit by bit, gun ownership became much more widespread. There was not a deliberate plot by anybody. It was just the way that things are going. One of the terms we use in political science is incrementalism. In other words, things change in a series of small steps, which don't seem to be so significant at the time. But when you look back, you can see there's been a huge change. And that's what happened with America in the 19th century. So it went from being a fairly peaceful society, at least in the towns, not at all as they're portrayed in um, Hollywood movies. Guns had become cheaper and, of course, they're easily, easily available. So that was a change that took place and so guns then became a much more of an important part of the American way of life. And, and that, of course, has meant that America has now become well notorious for the number of gun deaths that take place. Not only gun deaths in terms of murder, but also suicides. If you have a gun in the home, you probably stand a greater chance of committing suicide and you'd use that gun if you're a male. Women don't use guns so often for committing suicide, but certainly males, depressed males sitting at home with a gun, they will use the gun on themselves. Quite often, you know, you get people like Donald Trump saying, well, look, if everybody had a gun, America would be safer. You know, you wouldn't have shooters in schools because you'd have your own gun and you could shoot the shooter. But in fact, the evidence would suggest that if you, if everybody had guns, you'd have an increase in gun violence, including violence against yourself, because you'll be committing suicide using a gun. That's quite interesting. Yeah. Not what Donald Trump says. And by the way, <laughs> he used to be anti-gun about 20 Absolutely. years ago. Absolutely, yeah. Oh. <laughs> drives me mad. He never joined the National Rifle Association. Uh, in the last few years, of course, he's now had to invent himself as a as a gun owner or whatever. But no, uh, he, he's very much like the Democrat presidents. They don't join the National Rifle Association. The National Rifle Association is also interesting because um, that was founded in 1872. So that was, um, what, seven years after the American Civil War. And two Union soldiers set it up as a rifle club for army sharpshooters, and it had close links with preparing people for military service. So it was simply a feed-in device to get people to know about guns and perhaps help them get a career within the military. It had little to do with politics or formulating policy. After World War II, the National Rifle Association expanded its work to include training courses for hunters, teaching courses in gun safety, and assisting with the US Olympic teams, where, of course, rifle shooting or gun shooting it would be Olympic sports. The change occurred to the National Rifle Association in the 1970s, when the NRA decided to become a far more political organisation. And so it became a lobbyist organisation for gun owners. And it came in originally behind it as a support for Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, was not also much of a gun owner but they, they figured that they would work through the Republican Party. So it is interesting. So the, the Republicans endorse the Second Amendment. You have a right to bear arms. And the Democrats are reluctant to take it on. They, you know, there is now some talk early on in the 2020 presidential campaign, which has now already got underway. You've got some of the more radical Democrats talking about it. Obviously, Bernie Sanders is not a gun owner. Elizabeth Warren is not a gun owner. So you, you've got some people who are more critical of gun ownership. 
but the National Rifle Association will be spending a lot of money to get those candidates defeated. Yeah, I was about to say, and the National Rifle Association, I mean, they're pretty ballsy organisation in general. Like they're pretty, they have their messaging nailed. They know how to come out with a response to everything, and they do come out yep. with a response to everything. They hold massive rallies for tens and thousands of people and endorse and candidates, as you said. How big a job, Keith, would it be, though, to wind back these laws in any capacity? I mean, as we've seen, the closest it came was after the Florida kids at the school last year, two years ago, yeah. I'm afraid. Uh, but it was just, you know, and the kids mobilised, they marched on Washington. It felt like there was going to be change then and nothing still. Nothing. No, it's never going to change. Remember, it's enshrined in the Constitution, you have a right to bear arms. It's very difficult to amend the Constitution. Americans have had decades trying to amend the Constitution to support equal rights, that women should be treated the equal of men. They can't even get agreement on that, even something as bland as the Equal Rights Amendment. That's a whole separate story, but it's really very interesting to look at the failure of the Equal Rights Amendment Act. So you're not going to be able to change the provision within the Constitution guaranteeing the right to bear arms. And also there are about twenty or 30,000 laws from one county to another, one state to another, uh, or, and also some national laws relating to weaponry. It's an incredibly complicated situation to try to suddenly restrict the right to, to bear arms. So what we're seeing is that um, a lot of people are giving up on trying to work through the politicians because they're seen as being in the pocket of the National Rifle Association. And, is, and, and, of course, the Democrats have got to be careful because, remember, two years ago, they lost a lot of their traditional blue-collar supporters and the Republicans picked them up. They used the slogan from Karl Rove, God, gays and guns. We love God, hate gays and think everybody should have a gun. And it was a winning formula. And Barack Obama, the young senator in 2008, did a great deal of damage to his own presidential campaign when he talked about small-town Americans with their love of guns because it was just seen as elitist city talk from one of these northern Democrats. Now, he managed to recover from that and went on to win the White House in 2008. But the Democrats have got to be careful that they don't continue to annoy their bl traditional blue-collar supporters, which is what Trump had managed to recruit in 2016 and, pr and provided that stunning victory in 2016, the biggest electoral upset in American politics since 1948. So uh, Trump was a genius, or at least had Steve Bannon as his genius. So he came up with the right approach to winning over the angry white males who felt betrayed by their traditional party, which is a Democrat party. They voted, therefore, for the Republicans. And Michael Moore was warning about this, you know, the filmmaker, mm -hmm. saying that Hillary Clinton has got to visit some of these old American states, and, and she failed to do that. So it's difficult for the Democrats to take this issue on, and so it is very interesting now to see how the anti-gun lobby are learning from the anti-smoking movement. So um, in the United States now, where there's, a, where there's smoke, there's a lawyer. Oh, so, it's, it's the most litigious country in the world, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Two-thirds of the world's lawyers live in the United States. And so the anti-smoking movement went through the legal system. They've given up with the political system. And so they've introduced um, a They've introduced court cases to oppose smoking, 
And that has certainly worked, although uh, tragically you still do get people who smoke, but they are taking on the, the smoking lobby through the legal system. And so there is now an argument that somehow they will find a way of working through the legal system, holding gun shop dealers, for example, responsible if there is another mass shooting, something like that. I just don't know what they're going to do, but they have said that they're going to work through the anti the, me- the method used by the anti-smoking lobby to go through the legal system. So then lobby the people who are the victims of gun violence and get them to... Get them to sue the mobilize, companies. Mobilise, sue yep. the companies. It's a great, it's a really great way to approach yeah. it, really, when you think about it. Yeah, and it's a, unfortunately it's a reflection of the failure of the American political system. But if you're a, an anti-gun activist, then you've got to do whatever is required to secure the, you know, the banning of those guns. That's the tragedy of the whole situation. Too many people with too many guns. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking about America's love affair with guns because it always wasn't the case and yet we've seen these decades of horrific crimes where kids are killed with guns in schools and massacres happen as we saw in Las Vegas with um, someone somewhat unhinged is the philosophy, shooting out a, a hotel window just randomly and killing 50 people, over 50 people. I mean, you're seeing this stuff all the time over there, Keith. It not almost There's almost a massacre of at least of over two or three people yeah. every day yeah. in the States, and yeah. yet they do nothing about their gun laws. In fact, whenever it is posed to American lawmakers or the NRA or anyone else about Australia, the success we had in Australia... They shoot that down, excuse the pun, but they shoot that down, don't they? They've got an excuse for it. They've got an argument for everything. The NRA over there is extremely well prepped. Yeah. And the NRA would say if Americans are well armed, they'll never be invaded by the Russians or the Chinese. And it doesn't work with me, but you know, it obviously works with some of the voters back in the United States. So they would say we're keeping America safe from foreign invasion. It's not a reasoning that I would use. And you made reference to some of these um, murderers having mental health issues. Well, we have mental health issues in Australia as well, but we don't have quite so many uh, massacres. And, of course, in Australia, the turning point was uh, 30-odd years ago down at Port Arthur when a murderer indulged in mass murder. That was in June 1996. Martin Bryant killed 35 people at a Tasmanian tourist attraction. Horrible. Um, Everyone, I just, ugh. Yeah. Uh, by the way, he's in isolation and every morning he asks, has his record been broken? And the prison guards will not tell him. Are you serious? Yep. So he, he's not allowed any access to media. So he doesn't know whether or not his record has been broken. So John Howard, who was then the Prime Minister, brilliant at seeing how the public mood is changing. And so he then uh, exploited the the anger within the Australian population to create a world first, a national taxation levy to buy back guns from owners. And there was an encouragement to people to surrender unregistered ones with no questions asked. So over 640,000 weapons were handed in. And of course, in New Zealand, they've just gone through the same process, which was pioneered by John Howard. I gave evidence to the Royal Commission into violence or National Committee on Violence, where we had uh, 30 years ago, we had two unrelated massacres in Melbourne in which two lone gunmen killed a total of 15 people. It's interesting, it was a very big committee work. 
as I say, I was one of those who gave evidence. Um, the recommendations were largely ignored because it was thought at that time, as in the US, gun control is politically risky and the politicians run for cover at the first sound of gunfire. And then you get, just under a decade later, you get the Port Arthur massacre and John Howard has got no choice but to then go ahead with the buyback scheme. And, of course, he now you know, is lauded internationally, at least for some people, because of the step that he took. It's interesting that uh, Howard had a number of meetings with George Bush and the thing on which they always disagreed is the question of gun control. What was George Bush's stance? Well, he wanted people to have guns. Well, he's got guns. Why shouldn't everybody else have them? Mm, okay. Part of the American tradition. So then how, where do you see, I mean, as you said, it can never change, but surely they can wind them back, Keith. Do you think that if you do get a more left-wing, just say, hypothetically, that Trump did get voted out and someone like Bernie Sanders did get in or Elizabeth Warren, which is they're more of the left of the Democratic Party and it almost feels like that's the way you need to go if you're going to defeat Trump. Um, But how... How would they ever get that reform anyway? Because what's the process? Like, what, what, what they? Well, they they would table legislation and it has to go through both houses of Congress. And for an incoming president, you've got to start doing it in the first two years. Right. So that's when Obama got his massive health care reform made within his first two years. Because generally speaking, Americans will tend to vote against the incumbent party in the midterm elections. So the second lot of two years, as Donald Trump himself has found, um, you'll find people voting against the party in the White House. So you'd need to act very quickly. You need to be able to get the legislation up. But the National Rifle Association will make life very difficult for you. And don't forget, in the American political system, all the lower house changes every uh, two years, but the Senate changes every six years. So you have every two years one-third of the Senate standing down. So unless you can get a clean sweep of improved people uh, in the Senate, uh, even if you get your legislation through the lower house, you won't get it through the Senate. And what about American sentiment on this particular issue? What do we know about what Americans believe or what they think? Well, I think it depends on which American you're talking to. Mm. So I teach American students, none of whom have ever owned guns. But they're the educated. But they're the educated ones. They're from Boston. You know, if I were in the Midwest, it'll be a completely different group of students. Or down south in the or deep south. Or down south, yeah. So it's very difficult to come up with some standard expression of assessing American attitudes towards guns. And it's also it, America as a country is so different from yep. north to south, east to west. It's extraordinary. It's like how many states are there again? 50. So they're like 50 different countries because they're also different. Yeah, absolutely. So it is very difficult then to see how America is ever going to get out of this, except perhaps with the um, change of attitudes over time that you might end up with younger people not being so infatuated with guns. It's interesting that the old Wild West movies that I've been pillaring in this uh, interview, you know, most of those have now disappeared. That was an era that disappeared about 20 years ago. It was the big issue, you know, in Hollywood for making movies, but that's all now gone. So the appetite for that type of thing has gone. Although tragically, you'd have to say when you look at some of the computer games that youngsters are playing, they are very violent. Very. They just make your skin crawl. Yeah. So there is still this undertone of uh, addiction to violence within our society. So it's, it's going to be very difficult to change it. And, of course, if you're China, or better still Japan, which has very limited gun violence, you just say, well, this is just further evidence of the decline of the United States. 
They're busy shooting each other when their economy is in a state of collapse. You've got too much violence, etc. And Trump at the helm. And Trump at the helm. <laughs> Doesn't look good. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Suter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.